So then I was like, did they? If they did, then I'm just going to ruin this whole take. So I don't know what to do. Like, I, I would like to share my thoughts, but I guess it's too late. So I can, I'm still recording. You can say it right now. I don't even remember. What was the question? What were your thoughts on Blade Runner? Final thoughts. Let's save all of this and just keep it. of the Sin Essential Podcast. My name is John Gilpatrick. Joining me are my fellow Nexus 6 replicants, our replicant-in-chief, Aaron Pinkston. Aaron, how are you? I have seen people... I, oh, God, I screwed that up. I have seen things you people have never seen. What? What am I doing? I, I knew I had that line down. Whatever. Fuck it. Uh, I'm doing great. We, we can do a take, too. There are no second takes in podcasting. <laughs> his, his memory's failing him. It's uh, he's misremembering things. It's a theme. That line has disappeared like tears in the rain. Uh, yep. the, the other voices you heard there, Sarah Gore. Sarah, how are you? I'm uh, pretty good, uh, especially since when I said I wasn't going to eat my dinner during this podcast. I was totally lying. I'm super <laughs> going to eat it during the podcast, and it looks so good, you guys. What oh my it? god. I made a butternut squash galette. It's got caramelized onions oh and like God. fontina in it. Okay. But I'm going to eat it all. It's going to be so good. <laughs> so Sarah's going to be a little quiet for a while. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> no podcasting with your mouth full, Sarah. Uh, Fine. Also joining us uh, for the first time officially uh, is Zach Davis. Zach, how are you? Good, good. Good to be here on my first official not hopefully lost episode I'm, I'm looking forward to it <laughs> yes we will uh find those being john malkovich files one day and uh share them with the world but that day is not today we've got blade runner action to bring you and uh on a blade runner filled couple weeks on the internet we uh are a little bit later than other people but hopefully you haven't exhausted your uh your brain supply or your capacity for awesome blade runner content the sequel has now been out for almost a week by the time you're listening to this. Uh, a couple of us have seen it, Zach and Aaron. Uh, Sarah and I have not, but we are going to talk about it. Not going to talk about spoilers, but we might sort of set the stage for those of you who haven't seen it and are curious. And both those guys will share their opinions. Uh, as per usual, our main topic, Blade Runner, we will be getting to spoilers. So if you haven't seen that film, go check it out and uh, come back and listen to this. So, with that said, uh, I'm going to kick it over to Zach, since you are sort of leading the coverage this week. Can mm-hmm. you discuss your general thoughts on Blade Runner and kind of your relationship to the film? Yeah, um, well, I, I picked uh, Blade Runner. Uh, first of all, it's it's one of my uh, favorite movies, but it wasn't always like that, and I, I kind of talk about that where... Uh, it was originally a movie I kind of watched because I knew it was supposed to be a good movie. And, um, and so I saw it for that reason as a film snob early on. I knew it was just part of my initiation. And um, it, I really kind of 
didn't get it at first. It's very, um, it was very slow, uh, kind of dreamlike. Um, it didn't fit um, a lot of the movies I was seeing at the time. But it's a movie that I think is kind of essential because, first of all, the influence it has on other movies that I keep seeing. But also, it's one of those movies that, to me, has a lot of layers uh, to get lost in. And each time I watch it, uh, I kind of appreciate it more and more. So I just was really excited to uh, put it out there and, and read what other people were going to write up on it and compare it to the uh, sequel. So it's been it's been fun. Uh, yeah, that's cool. I kind of have a similar... I, it's funny that you said that you watched it early on because you knew it was like this film that cinephiles were supposed to like and um, I've always been aware of it as that also um, but for some reason like it's for that reason it's kind of intimidated me um, and I wrote about this a little bit in my first viewing but I just watched it for the first time uh, over the weekend I guess and um, I mean I definitely I think that like I'll come to appreciate it more than I do right now um, it really took me aback, uh, seeing it for the first time. And, and I don't know that I was prepared for some of the things that we're going to get into, um, specifically the pace and kind of some of the characters relations to, uh, or I guess their morality and, and things like that, um, which I found very, uh, surprising going through this for the first time, but I appreciate it. And I think that it's a film that I'll come to really, really enjoy and love um, after I can uh, dive into it and process it and maybe watch it again knowing what it is. But uh, it's, it's it's an interesting one, that's for sure. Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't... I, I totally uh, get where both of you came from uh, the first times that, that you had seen it. It is sort of an... Uh, I think if you if you're coming at it from the first time now, it is sort of strange uh, based on what I think your expectations would probably be. It's, it's definitely not the sort of action packed Harrison Ford film that you might expect. Uh, I mean, it is about as far apart from uh, another movie he made at the time, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, I think it's, it's about as different from that movie as he could possibly get in terms of its its style and tone and uh its pacing um I, I was trying to remember the first time that i uh watched blade runner i think it was probably uh at some point when i was in college uh as with many of the classic films that we've discussed on the podcast and i think this was one that was for some reason one of the only like great films that were on Netflix streaming at the time, way back when, like 12 years ago. Um, and I'm guessing it was probably the director's cut that, that I had seen um, at that time. And we'll talk about some of the differences in the versions that, uh, probably later. Um, but since I've, I've seen Blade Runner a few times since, I saw it in a theater a few years ago uh, with my wife who was seeing it for the first time and is a huge sci-fi fan. And uh, to kind of put her uh, on blast here, she fell asleep during it. <laughs> um, which, I mean, again, I, I can't really fault anyone for that because if you're like not in the right mood <laughs> to take no, this no. film in, it's like just not going to work for you, I think. And I think it definitely, as, as Zachary was saying, it, I think it definitely does warrant uh, multiple viewings to 
be able to pick up on some of the uh, thematic things that it that it's doing. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of great style in the film. Um, I mean, probably what the film is most known for is though the the way it it builds its uh, 2019 version of Los Angeles and this sort of weird like metropolis inspired like uh, sort of almost like an underworld where all of these people are just jam-packed and everything's sort of multicultural and Japanese influenced and there's you know the the great image of the big like uh, digital billboard of the the geisha woman. Um, I think that all of that that stuff is is I think that stuff is mostly why this film has stood the the test of time and has inspired so many other sci-fi films and uh, continues to be a really great film even if it isn't the most entertaining. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, um, yeah. Sarah. I love this galette almost <laughs> as much as I hate Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, I Saving the best for last. <laughs> um, I mean, I actually defend Blade Runner. I've like def- I've defended it in conversation before as like a I I understand like where it fits in the canon. I understand why it lasts. I just don't enjoy it, you know, as much as other people. And then I watched it this last time. And what I really should say is apparently I didn't enjoy it literally at all. Like, it's just it's forever. It's kind of gross. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like women Ooh, aren't gross, people, beautiful. and I get it. But also <laughs> women aren't people literally. how fun Um, they really did a lot with that by treating them the exact same way don't talk beautiful hush hush Um, anyway I just can't get into it and then apparently which I can't wait for everyone to make fun of me for I've never understood the conversation about like is Deckard a replicant is he isn't he and I'm like I literally don't understand what you're pointing to to even have this conversation. Like, what happened in the movie that this is a question at all? Like, I don't get it. And then I read the article that we posted this week. Uh, I think that Alex wrote talking about the unicorn dream. And I was like, well, I don't remember that scene at all. And I just watched (laughs) this movie. I've seen this movie four times. Four. I've seen it in See? a theater. Yes. I've seen it at home. I've seen it on the big screen. And I was just like, nope, nope, nothing. I don't remember that. See, that's, that's the thing, sir. That's the theme. Memories are faulty. Okay. Oh, there it is. Well, I, think I, guess, I, I guess I proved it's great. We don't have to there. talk about it anymore, right? Yeah, no, definitely. we definitely have to talk a lot about it because I got to get so so I'd like to continue that thread if we can because I like I said I watched this for the first time and there was two like big themes to like the seemingly endless supply of hot takes on the internet about Blade Runner over the last two or three weeks and one was you know, is Deckard really a hero? And we're going to get into that. But the other one is, is Deckard a replicant? Um, And I kind of felt similarly to Sarah until I started reading. I was like, okay, I do remember the unicorn dream. I didn't give it a second thought in the course of the movie, um, but I remember that scene and I appreciated that sort of perspective on it. But Mm -hmm. the question I had about it was like, 
who cares? Um, that's actually kind of the point, the the realization I had. So I guess that's something that um, we we can agree on in terms of itself. <laughs> Because it, it, it kind of the point is that human or not, like, he's dehumanized. Right. Whether he's an android or not, I mean, mm-hmm. he's, as we talked about, he's a dick. He, he does his job without questioning it. He basically, and I always thought uh, this scene was odd either way, like, uh, having the hero do this. But he basically assaults Rachel at one point, which right. totally... At that point, I mean, I wasn't really with him at that point anyway, but at that point, you're like, wow, this guy's, how is this, (laughs) you know, what kind of point are they making here? When he's saved at the end uh, by by Roy, he spits in Roy's face like he has no great thing, but that's through him. It's where you see that, um, well, human or not, this guy is a dick and the robot's pretty much a better a, a better human than he is and he i guess kind of realizes that at the end you know when he takes rachel off but still he's you know replicant or not he's he's got what philip k dick says in my ridiculous research on an obsession with philip k dick he's basically (laughs) like you know we have android brains so like his whole point is machine or man it's kind of like it doesn't matter because we both have our own programming that we're going with so his programming is dickhead kind of <laughs> you guys you guys don't oh. see any sort of uh tragedy in uh in, in two ways if, if deckard is a replicant one he's a replicant but he doesn't recognize that he's a replicant so there i mean there's a theme that goes through this movie and especially in 2049 which we'll get into more more explicitly um that sort of not recognizing yourself and yeah. like how i mean he can't be a good person because he doesn't know who he is he doesn't know who he is and himself right. he has a strong sense of self and right kind of, yeah and then the, the other sort of tragedy to it is that he is sort of co-opted to killing his own kind and like that's all his identity is is just you know killing himself basically killing his brothers and sisters more or less you don't see any tragedy in that i guess (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think i think uh, a lot of the is decorator replicant talk is 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 sort of overblown in like internet like fanboy kind of speak and stuff but i mean i think it does absolutely work thematically in the film yeah so your question you know is there any tragedy like yeah but I think some of the part, like, whether he can be a good person or not, like, to say that it's because he doesn't know who he is, I think, is a bit of a cop-out. Like, um, I don't know. I'm not willing to give him enough slack to say that there's, like, whatever tragedy there is, is, um, is like, the greater... The thing of greater importance versus how actually shitty he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And like how the fact that especially like when movies do this, it's like you can argue it however you want, but I think when you put it in the context of like film as a whole, like they gave him a happy ending with the woman he tried to rape, like as if 
well, she got over that and super loves him now, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. And like they don't yeah. actually do enough to say, make any moral stance on whether that's good or bad at all. Uh, yeah, to the, I don't. If you want to believe that it's cool, you can. Yeah, but, like, I don't think like, Scott like comes to it and is just like, "Fuck you!" Like, right. <laughs> this is just another movie, like a million other movies I've seen. This is this is very in the hard-boiled detective vein, which is mm-hmm. full of misogyny. Like, yeah. Which I'm not saying that that means that is bad, you know, as a whole. I actually love film noir a lot, like a lot, a lot. And that's full of those kinds of stories. Um, but it's just sort of like, I don't know. I, don't, I, I literally I have such a hard time explaining why I don't like this movie, because there's so few things that I'm willing to come out and say, I think they're bad. I think it just comes more of like, I just don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I totally get that. That makes sense. It's like, it's not necessarily doing anything wrong. It's just not the kind of thing that you are responding to. Yeah. 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 That's fair. The, uh, the, the other thing that, uh, people point to as a telltale sign that record, uh, that Deckard is a replicant. Uh, I think it only exists in the final cut, but, uh, you'll notice that throughout, uh, the film, there are shots where the replicant's eyes sort of glow like this orange color. Um, and and there's one shot where Deckard's eyes does the same. Yes, there. Yeah, that is true. I think that is in just uh, the director's cut. And I know yeah. that another thing that people point out too is uh, the photographs in his apartment, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. replicants are really big on photographs as being evidence of memories and implants and whatever. And if you look at Deckard's photographs that he goes to, it's very odd because he like is solemnly picking up what looks like photographs from like 1910. They're like yeah, black I, and white, I, oddly. I will admit, it, I don't understand that at all. I, I, I was like, why are they so old? Why are those pictures so old? I don't get it. Why is he looking at them? Whose are they? Yeah. Why do they have so many? Where did he get them? Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of, yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of the thing. But in, and so like a, a lot of the other replicants have those photographs. So people are like, he's a replicant because he has all these random old pictures that make no sense. But because his memories are implanted, he doesn't see it as being weird. It's, he sees it as real memories. But even on set, like, even if you ask Harrison Ford, he's like, no, he's a human. And Ridley Scott's like, no, he's a replicant. And the screenwriter's like, no, I think he's human. And so there's, like, they're, they're not even um, agreeing on certain things. So it's hard to really call it one way or the other when, like, the people making the movie are all doing it in a different, with a different sense well, I, I would argue that even if they all said, yeah, it's totally a replicant, then I would be like, well, shouldn't have made it ambiguous in your movie then, because by making <laughs> it ambiguous, it doesn't matter what you say. You put the question out there, which means I can choose to go either way, because there's enough evidence for both. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, like, that's like removing the author intent from it, which, you know, I think is uh, reasonable and important to do with almost all art. Sure. Like you can yeah. say you meant to do one thing, but you know whatever you've created is is what it is. It exists as it is, and there doesn't have to be a right or wrong answer to it. With mm-hmm. you know, obviously, <laughs> um, I can't finish the rest of that thought. But like you guys get it. It's, it was a smart. Yeah. It was a smart thing. I was saying it was there. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. But the yeah. interesting thing I think is that you can argue that by having so much mystery around this sort of you know, key aspect of the film, it allows them to get away with releasing new versions of it every five years. 
Well, that might be a good segue to talk about the theatrical version. Oh my gosh, you read my intent perfectly. <laughs> so, I uh, rented this movie, and I hit play, and then it started, and I thought, oh no, what is all this voiceover doing here? Oh. But then I was like, it can't be that bad. I'm just going to keep watching it for a little bit. And then 20 minutes later, I was like, no, it can be that bad. And I need to turn this off right now. Thankfully, I remembered that I actually own it and I didn't need to rent it at all. And by <laughs> I, I mean, my husband owns it because he likes the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Ooh. Ooh, boy. Ooh, that boy, the theatrical yeah. version. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> kind so of, no I... wonder people did not like it. I don't know anything about this. I told you guys up front. Like, I know that there's a bunch of cuts to this, but I really, I watched the final mm-hmm. cut because I have it on Blu-ray, and uh, I have no idea what the differences are or why it's important. But it sounds like they're pretty drastic. Is so that- I will let um, you know Aaron and Zach kind of speak more to the the background of it and like okay. why things happened the way they did. But I will say, like from a uh, aesthetic standpoint. Uh, as a choice, uh, you know how Harrison Ford in interviews sounds like he fucking hates you. Um, <laughs> right. Imagine right, right. he read a very lengthy script of voiceover exactly like that. Yeah. Well, he's so, not trying. Yeah. Oh my god, there's so much of it. There's so much voiceover. It's just like it never stops. And then it's all explaining stuff from like, yeah, yeah, movie. I know. Like I figured mm-hmm. that out context clues of the, the movie that you made i don't need you to tell me this well yeah from for speaking on the background i did uh see a little bit about it i know um from the back the idea of it sounding like harrison ford hates you it's because at the time it was recorded harrison ford hated you literally because he was being asked to record it um again after apparently um ridley scott a lot of people think it was added because um, the studio is like, we don't get it. Add voiceover. The audience needs to have it explained. But actually, Ridley Scott wanted the voiceover, from what I hear. In his, inter- I read an interview where he said, I wanted the voiceover because it was more like a detective novel with the voiceover. Mm-hmm. So they recorded it. And uh, it wasn't apparently, I don't know how true it is because I've never heard it because I don't even know if it exists. But it wasn't bad. But then he ends up going back and looking over it taking it out, then um, re-recording parts, taking it out again, re-recording, and then when he sends it to the studio without voiceover, they're like, you need to re-record it again. And so it was like Harrison Ford's fifth time recording this (laughs) arguably awful expository um, voiceover, and at that point, he was pretty much hating you, or hating the person pressing the record button. So that's the background I have heard apparently the entire filmmaking process was fairly chaotic so there's different stories all around mm-hmm. um but mm-hmm. that's 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 the version i've heard of it the background yeah i've never seen the theatrical cut but it, it does make sense in in a way to have voiceover if if he is trying to shoot for the hard-boiled film noir uh, mm-hmm. and a total aesthetic because a lot of those films did have voiceover. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it, it, it definitely, it certainly doesn't need it. And I could definitely see it being a much dumber film um, with it. Uh, I, I believe also that the 
the theatrical cut had a different ending, which was like happier. Um, yeah. And then of course the, the unicorn dream sequence that we've mentioned wasn't in the theatrical cut, uh, which uh, made some of the ending a little, it definitely took on a different context with uh, the, uh, the origami unicorn that's left uh, that Deckard finds at the end of the film, which without the unicorn dream only sort of signifies that the, the other detective, uh, I think his name's Gaff played by Edward James almost mm-hmm. was at, uh, was at Rachel's apartment, but that's like the only thing that that really means. It doesn't have that sort of added context that the, uh, the unicorn dream gives you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it had like a very sort of, workshopped kind of uh ending to to make it a little happier a little brighter i think um which yeah i don't it doesn't really play with the rest of the tone of the film <laughs> um mm. aaron you had brought something up before we started recording about sort of what we think about replicants and and what they represent now i guess what 35 years later right this movie was made. do you want to expand on that yeah, sure. Um, I, I find it kind of interesting seeing the film now, and this kind of goes into some of the some of the things Zach was saying earlier about um, not really seeing Deckard as a hero, um, because basically what the replicants are are, I mean, they're basically slaves that are uprising and. Uh, you know, once they escape their their slave lives, they're being hunted down and killed. I mean, there's obviously that parallel to um, to actual slavery in 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 America's history, but I, I just think like seeing them as sort of some kind of social justice warriors that are you know standing up for some sort of civil rights. It it just really speaks to kind of our current uh, current era of political protests. Uh, I don't know if there's any like real one-to-one comparisons to what's going on today, but just that sort of general mood. So I, I, I think seeing, especially uh, Roy Batty, who <laughs> I was gonna is say, uh, uh, cops killing people indiscriminately. <laughs> yeah, just yes. like and like right, like yeah. shooting them yeah. in the back. I mean, uh, obviously the the film very much portrays them as uh, being very. Uh, violent and capable of uh killing people uh you know they're all very strong and can do like cartwheels and stuff so um, <laughs> that's pretty dangerous yeah, you don't want all, that. Uh, <laughs> right. um yeah I, I mean i don't think with the first three replicants that we see uh deckard track down and kill um i don't know if any of them have as many redeeming qualities, but I think once you get to Roy uh, by the end of the film and kind of understand how intelligent he is, like how self-sacrificing he is, how willing he is to sort of fight for a cause to save him and not just him, like his, his, you know, his brothers and sisters. Um, I mean, I think he's a, he's a very interesting, complex character, probably the only complex character in the entire film. Oh, yeah. um, and I, it, it's interesting because by the, by the finale, there's, uh, I think 
probably the only really thrilling scenes and sequences in the film toward the end where it's basically like the showdown between Deckard and Batty, um, where Roy, he kind of just becomes like sort of a cartoon character for a little while, like a menacing sort of like psycho killer. And that actually kind of took me out of the film this, this time watching it because I, I was kind of really getting invested into him as, um, as really having the you you know being the heart and humanity of the film and really kind of being uh you know championing his cause and then you know the film just kind of makes him like an an evil villain for a little while before obviously his his final speech which has gone down as one of the one of the great character monologues in in film history and I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty stunning um, and adds a lot of depth to the character right at the end. So, yeah, I don't know. What did you guys think about? Did you kind of, how did you kind of see the replicants uh, in terms of, of being the actual heroes of the film? Um, well, I, I think, uh, like I was kind of talking about earlier before we started recording, I think that um, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's one of the big things that really takes people out away from the film a little bit is how it kind of switches um the tropes the archetypes a bit um it goes from you would assume harrison ford hero actor he's playing heroes in all these other movies you know um that we follow him along the journey and he's the person who's going to change and he's the but it's totally not and i think it's right after that assault on rachel where you start it kind of flips a little bit and I, again, I, my memory is kind of off a little bit, but I'm pretty sure it's right after that that we really start focusing on Roy and uh, Sebastian, the twenty uh-huh. character. Right, yeah. And it really becomes about um, him basically confronting his creator, very Frankenstein-ish. Um, uh-huh. and, um, and once he uh, confronts him and takes his revenge uh, by with the famous eye-gouging scene, which... <laughs> Oberyn Martell. Uh, yeah, yeah, which eyes, you know, that's huge in, in actually both movies, which I kind of talk about in the related review, the the eye motif. But after that, he kind of becomes, um, you know, even though that's not a heroic thing, that's kind of him taking power for himself. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where he starts, you know, changing. And even in his psycho killer moment, it kind of comes from a place of, you know, Daryl Hannah's just been killed. He, you know, wipes the blood on his lips, which is, you know, always always fun, I guess. And uh, and then he starts chasing him, and then uh, he has his redemption. So I feel like the replicants are kind of they kind of become the more more of the stand-in for the audience at that point, at least Roy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of where it changed for me, and that's where the, the whole flip of the hero's journey kind of happens, which makes it kind of uh, interesting upon repeated viewings. Yeah, I think that the characters, you know, we've all kind of said at this point, are very complicated. Um, and the one who's who's really not is Tyrell. Um, and you have this corporation, which um, I don't recall there being, like, any sort of form of government or even suggestion that there's a government in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so the only, like, overarching thing is this corporation, um, which isn't, like too hard to imagine um especially right now but like you know it's that's the only thing that's like pure good or pure evil and it's obviously pure evil it's it's like not a good thing they've created this world in which you have to be fearful of this and that and you don't know 
you know, who's good and who's bad. And, and obviously people are suffering and it's all because they have the power to create this thing that, uh, engenders a lot of fear in the world. And so when he kills him in such a brutal way, it is, I thought kind of cathartic and you can imagine the film ending at that point and you know obviously at that point Roy is basically like a James Bond character that's finally like took it taken out the big bad guy Deckard yeah. is the uh the henchman who like fails in his mission and uh and it's you know it's different but yeah the, that switch then to the sort of like Cape Fear type stalker is <laughs> is a little jarring but it does lead to the monologue which you mentioned and not just a great sort of final moment for a character in film history, but um, obviously uh, the uh, great uh, like improv- improvisation moment with the uh, the tears in the rain line, um, yeah. which I had been excited for all throughout watching this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's really I mean, and that's the thing is that in that moment, like a hero's supposed to change, and he does. Yeah, and right. When, when he when he's saying that, and you and Deckard is looking at him like, huh? Like it totally doesn't compute with his programming. Like, <laughs> what's this guy talking about? He doesn't right. really change. He's just kind of like, okay, now we got to get out of here. It's Roy that does it, and Deckard's just kind of left like weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is weird. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, do you guys want to talk a little bit about um, twenty forty nine? Oh boy. Yes. Good. <laughs> I think people uh, want to hear our thoughts. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Zach. You can start. Okay. Um, well, uh, basically, I had I had gone into 2049 right after writing up uh, my thoughts on Blade Runner and the themes and, and consciousness and memories and the eyes and all of this different all these different things. So, um, seeing it. You know, there's a couple different uh, things. I don't even know where to start talking about it. But um, it definitely, um, I don't know, I guess the first thing that's on my mind is the idea of banking a bit on uh, nostalgia, which is interesting because the movie kind of references nostalgia in different ways. And mm-hmm. there's always that feeling when a, a movie like this starts. I, I think of the new Star Wars where you're kind of like, Oh yeah, they're kind of triggering my memories here a bit. So there was there was kind of that whole thing going on as I was watching it, but uh I guess the big thing that I know to, to talk about without ruining everything is kind of how they updated the world 30 years later to match our own um like the idea of, you know, Japan's the corporate overlords. It's still the same issue that uh, John was talking about where you have, you know, the the world is still basically run by police or corporations. And that's that's it. That's like the state. And it's all about control. But then you also see instead of Japan, which in 1982 people apparently thought Japan was going to own everything very, very soon. And now in 2049 you see instead of Japan influence, you see Russian lettering. You kind of see that sprinkled in throughout. So it's kind of like reflecting that whole thing. And then uh, technology has been kind of updated and commented on. There's an, there's a version of Alexa, which is kind of this hyper-sexualized holographic version. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And actually, that's no, no. And that's true because what, what Sarah was saying earlier about its portrayal of women, it, it kind of 
touches on that again and mm-hmm. I have to rewatch it because I don't know if it's really. I guess there's actually it's interesting because it talks a lot more about. Um, well, I don't know how much I can get into, but there's a lot more um, emphasis, I think, in, in from what I saw in female characters than the first one, and and specifically right. um, themes like of. Uh, ooh, never mind. I'm not going to talk about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting into similar territory. I'll just. I'll jump on that point and I'll say, yeah, it doesn't really treat uh, many of the the female characters in the film uh, very well. Um, There are some women who are in more powerful worlds uh, roles in this world. So, so that's definitely interesting, but um, there is sort of a, uh, there's one uh, relationship with Zachary had mentioned that um, is, uh, it actually kind of leaves on a really sad point um and i think has a lot to say about uh a a certain version of men um there's there's a lot of similar ground as a film like her um and it, it it really goes forward in a couple of scenes there's some interesting uh technical things that they're doing with with one particular character um but uh, I'm, I'm going to step back a second and, and just kind of say that, I mean, it is like a incredibly impressive film. Uh, it is humongous and sprawling yes. and gorgeous. Uh, I had tweeted back in, let's see, it's sometime in March of 2016, way, way back a long time ago. I had tweeted that uh, just on a whim, I said that Deacons was going to win his first Oscar for the Blade Runner film, which it wasn't even titled then. And uh, seeing it, I, I would not be surprised if that were the case. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's 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 definitely a more evolved epic version of the world than we saw. Uh, the ecolot, the environmental issues with the first film, which are you know smog and overpopulation. In this mm-hmm. one, it's really emphasized with the seawall that's kind of guarding yeah. Los Angeles and the, the the absolute destruction of nature, which is mm-hmm. more of a theme in the original book, too, which isn't touched upon much in the movie. But the idea of animal life has gone almost extinct, all replaced mm-hmm. with these artificial animals. And, uh, and that's really emphasized a lot more, I think, in 2049. There, there's a particular American city that plays a big part in this film. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's basically in the sort of post-nuclear wasteland, uh, yeah. which which uh, gives some, some really good visuals that you see in, in the trailer. Um, I, kind of thinking about the film, kind of what it reminds me the most of in some ways is Prometheus, um, which kind of makes sense because this is obviously a giant expansion on a a film franchise that was started by Ridley Scott and Ridley Scott had obviously more influence on Prometheus, but was a producer on the Blade Runner film. Um, But I've been trying to kind of figure out in my mind why I think Blade Runner 2049 works where Prometheus really didn't. Um, and I'm not the biggest hater on Prometheus. I thought it was like, okay, after I saw it and I haven't seen it again since the theaters. Uh, it certainly wasn't, um, 
wasn't a film that like wrecked me like it did so many uh, film fans. But um, <laughs> I, I think I think part of it might be that Prometheus was sort of shrouded in this mystery. And I think, well, I guess Blade Runner has been too, but I think it meets its, I think it just simply meets the expectations of what the audience is going to be looking for. Whereas Prometheus, I think maybe promised more, um, but then also sort of delivered things that the fan base of Alien didn't really want or expect. Um I don't know if yeah. that makes sense, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm trying to think of just how much I, I liked Blade Runner. I, I feel like I'm definitely going to see it again. I feel like if you have, I, I feel like a lot of the big problems you guys may have had with the original film, a lot of that is still there. Uh, it is another just oppressively slow movie. Um and it's it's big and sprawling. Sorry. I mean, it's it's like it's like two hours and forty five minutes, but it is entertaining. I mean, it it's intriguing. There there's always sort of it's always sort of like you kind of don't exactly know where it's going, and there is much more of a sort of mystery plot to it instead of just a guy kind of chasing around these robots and trying to kill them. Um, there is sort of a a more defined sort of mystery at the center that changes a couple of times. uh, And I I think interesting and fulfilling ways. Um, But I think, I mean, the the main thing, just like the original, like it's the, the biggest merits of the, of the film are all technical. Uh, Even though it it totally bombed, I could still see it uh, doing pretty well in, in a lot of the technical awards at the end of the year. Um, hopefully it's poor box office didn't totally take it out of the running for some of that stuff. Uh, I also think that I think, uh, Ryan, Ryan Gosling, uh, and his, his performance, the performances are, I think um, you mean Brian Rosling. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Rosling. What is that? Yeah. Have you guys not seen all these behind the scenes with Harrison Ford continually referring to him as Brian? No, I did not. Oh my god. Everybody listening needs to see that. It's wonderful. And I it's I'm fifty percent convinced it's a joke and fifty percent like maybe he hates him. I don't know. No, I I doubt it's a joke. He probably like I'm sure somebody has told him uh, it's Ryan and he's like, I don't care. Yeah. Right. I just let's just wrap this up so I can get my plane right. in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, his his performance uh, I mean there were a couple moments. I think him and, and Harrison Ford had some moments where I was much more like I thought it was much more nuanced performing than than in Blade Runner. Like I was able to like get on board with their experience right away, whereas you're kind of removed from Deckard in the first one. In the I second one. That. Not that I've seen the second one, but that, that analysis of uh, Deckard has removed. It's exactly yeah. how I was thinking of it. Yeah, he yeah, yeah. And that kind and that's that's I feel was much different, even though you still have the similar themes of, of being dehumanized and it's still kind of covered, you you definitely um, are able to I I think the audience is supposed to be with Ryan Gosling in this one, as opposed to in the first one where it's purposefully confused or not purposely confused you can make the argument either way yeah on that point it it definitely helps that they actually give the ryan gosling character an emotional arc where 
I mean, I guess you have that with Deckard and his relationship to Rachel, but we've already sort of talked about how that is very problematic. Um, so it's kind of hard to connect with um, seeing it in in our context now. Uh, so yeah, I think that that plays a lot into what you were saying, Zach. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I know what you mean about, especially with Prometheus, where I kind of I, I was I thought about that too. Um, uh, in kind of uh, the third act, I was starting to worry, like, oh, is this going to go into Prometheus territory, where it's going to become more too much um, story for the movie? It's kind of what I felt like with Prometheus, but um, it doesn't. And I don't know if it's if it's the the writing, the directing, something reined it in a bit, I think, which was helpful. It didn't become sprawling to the point. It was focused. It was definitely focused on Ryan Gosling's journey, which I think really helped it. Cool. Uh, Sarah, yeah. have they sold you on seeing this? Uh, the opposite. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not interested. I mean, I told my husband I'd see it with him. So I probably will if he wants to. (laughs) I would definitely, I mean, I would definitely recommend it. It's, it is long, but. It's really, really long. My God, stop stressing how long it is. I wasn't (laughs) ever, I wasn't ever bored. I wasn't ever bored. Um, And I, I, I know a lot of people, uh, Give him slack, but I do like Denny Villeneuve. So um, do I. I mean, Arrival was one of my favorite films last year. Uh, a Prisoners, like, yeah, that has problems, but I kind of jo- enjoyed it for its like pulpy sensibilities. Um, Sicario. Yeah, Sicario is good. I think Sicario good. is fantastic. It's good. Yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah, and you can definitely—I mean, you can definitely see Villeneuve in the the filmmaking. So uh, there, there are definitely some shots that are reminiscent of uh, uh, some of the shots in Arrival, and uh, the the technical, the the special effects are like crazy outstanding in this. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and I liked you know. There's also things that remind me of Arrival, like especially some of the architecture. You know, the first movie had that kind of. In weird pyramid Egyptian thing going on with the corporation and this basically mm-hmm. takes that idea and pushes it so you get like I, re- I can remember going the, with the inside of the pyramid and you get like that arrival-esque like that weird music that throat singing kind of and I, I was in the IMAX theater and it was just like vibrating the seats and I'm like oh boy this is pretty dreadful good grief <laughs> so uh, you know you got kind of that whole touch going on which yeah, it just it, it works. I think I think it works. I've, I'm reading around a lot of reviews and talking to people who like it better than the original. I think for a lot of the reasons maybe we're touching on, it's 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 good. I, I really liked it. I, I I do want to see it again. It takes the themes of the first one and kind of uh, flips it a little bit. It flips it, but emphasizes it and updates it for our current world, which is really why I liked it. Cool. Yeah. You guys didn't mention Jared Leto at all, which is probably fine, but uh, I did find it interesting uh, when they said that their original choice for that role was David Bowie, and then they ended up with Jared Leto. I'm just like, how do you go? God took David Bowie, and we got Jared Leto? Yes! How do you make that change? How do you go from... That's not equal at all. 
Jared Leto is, let's just go, I'm just going to say, like, Tyrell, you know, he's evil, but it's subtle. Jared Leto's kind of dripping with deity. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, give him, they give him, like, quirks, and there, there's, there's, like, a cool uh, special effects thing that is tied to his character that uh, is really fun. He's, like, not in the movie very much. I think he's only in two or three scenes. I'm closer um, to seeing it now. His... <laughs> His uh, his henchman, uh, I don't have the actress's name, um, uh, but like his hen- his like henchman is really like the main villain of the of the film. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, kind of. She's, I mean, she's fantastic. Yeah, she's she's kind of she's kind of speaking of James Bond again. She's kind of like the James Bond uh, henchman in this one, I guess. She's dangerous. Like yeah, a little bit. She, she, she I mean, she's. Yeah, she's kind of like the, like always kind of moving forward, kind of menacing, yeah. kind of force. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, but very good. Yeah. Cool. Um, and Jared Leto, I mean, I don't know how much of the quirks is, or the movies and how much is Jared Leto going, I'm going to do it this way, you know, and it's his, like his interesting take. and But they're, they're interesting. I mean, we're, we're back to the eyes, you know. He's, a bl- he's blind and he has those weird, he has weird, it's not a spoiler, he's got like, stones that float around technology stones that he sees through and he kind of plays that up and there's a constant like the lights dim out when he's around because he doesn't need them so there's that they just have a lot of this character is evil attached to him that he went method again and just straight up blinded himself and now he's going to oh i think that's it (laughs) although i guess he could still send rats to viola davis if he's still blind yeah Um, anyway you sold me for this movie at jared leto's technology stones for eyes Um, yes it's technology stones that's the best way i can put it (laughs) any final thoughts on blade runner or the blade runner expanded universe aaron (laughs) um yeah one character we didn't really get into that i uh feel deserves some props is uh sebastian uh who is the the toy maker uh comes around like the beginning of the third act uh, and is sort of the gateway for Roy and Pris to meet Tyrell. Um, he's like this sad, lonely man who uh, makes the. Uh, uh, does he make the eyes? I think he makes the eyes. No, the no, that's no, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, James Hong. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. At the beginning, anyway, he he uh, he works with I think some of the DNA or. Uh, something I guess it's it's not totally important. Anyway, uh, he also uh, lives in this really creepy apartment and has these uh, lifelike uh, and some are robotic toys that uh, kind of really is like it, it becomes like more fun and more sad at the same time uh, when he shows up. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a character that I really respond to, and I and, think a really good touching small performance yeah and i think uh it's interesting because 2049 has uh, a character that i think is is kind of directly almost referencing that with the the memory maker uh character mm-hmm. kind of is similar and we didn't even get the my, my final file just cut in we didn't even get to the whole <laughs> religious allegory aspect of it which is okay. like apparently no, I don't want to. It's just too much. It's just a whole other layer. It's a whole other ridiculous. 
ridiculous layer, but you know, it's like uh, Sebastian is like uh, the the Jesus character, mm-hmm. and he's uh, responsible for introducing the Lucifer character. Now we're getting into some myth here with Roy to the Creator, and uh, there's like apparently a whole religious allegory theory attached mm-hmm. to this, which. That that well, let, that's neither here nor there. Let's let's stay away from it. <laughs> Just I, like I got to get Blade Runner off my mind. I've been looking at it in different ways, and uh, but yeah, the Sebastian character I think is is definitely. I wish you. That was the only thing that I disagreed with with Roy, because I, I, he kills him, right? I mean, I don't even know if we see him. Do we see Sebastian die? I don't think so. I, I could like, so be totally either, but... wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like I only just watched this film, so I can't say for sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Sarah, yeah, I'm with you. I, I love Sebastian. So cool. Yeah, I enjoyed him too. Just good. He's uh, good. Sarah, any final thoughts uh, from you? <laughs> Have we convinced you? <laughs> Is she even there? <laughs> She's just giving him silent treatment. Not even going to gratify that with a response. <laughs> <laughs> uh well i'm gonna i'm gonna uh follow sarah's lead and plead the fifth and just say that i'm glad i watched this movie uh i look forward to hopefully like three years from now uh stumbling across it in my uh blu-ray case and saying like hey like maybe i'll give that another shot and then really really enjoying it next time uh until then i'm sort of a mixed positive but uh, definitely yeah and I, yeah I think that's I think that's right I mean I think that's fair um, I don't I certainly don't hold Blade Runner in the high regard that some um, cinephiles do especially like I'm a huge sci-fi fan like yeah me too usually at the end of the year most of my favorite movies are are films that have definitely been heavily inspired by Blade Runner mm-hmm. Um but it, yeah, I mean, I don't know if this film totally yeah. works. I think some of it's the era too. I mean, just a sort of early '80s kind of actiony feel. Like, feels sort of limiting. Um, yeah, and and also just to add, to that, I, I think that one of the things is that it's kind of a movie. The more I watch it, of ideas, yeah. which I think is kind of difficult for a lot of people. It was. For, it's definitely for me, and it's and it's kind of the same with Philip K. Dick's literature, really. His books have often been criticized as being kind of cold, removed, and more about ideas than like working conceptual stories so much. I mean, that's a criticism at least. And I think it's a really conceptual movie with ideas, but it's got it's got its flaws. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. So uh, good talk. Uh, you can check out Blade Runner twenty forty nine in theaters right now, and uh, all the various cuts of Blade Runner. Uh, on DVD or Blu-ray or streaming someplace, I'm sure. Um, There's like 18 hours you can watch a Blade Runner. Yeah, somewhere. yes, uh, I'm sure Zach has a lot of other uh, ancillary recommendations for people who really want to go crazy as well. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for now, we'll let you go. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at the Sin Essential. You can like us on Facebook at the Sin Essential, and check us out on iTunes. Um, where you can subscribe to the podcast, download new episodes, and leave us a five-star review if you're feeling generous. It will help other people discover and enjoy.
enjoy the podcast. Um, Aaron, do you want to tee us up for what's coming soon? It's October, sure. so some horror stuff is uh, on the horizon, I know. Yeah, we're, we're getting creepy yes. for the next few weeks. Um, the, the week following uh, this week with Blade Runner, we're going to be uh, talking about a recent uh, documentary now, you hear documentary, and I just said we're going creepy. That doesn't seem to make sense, but uh, it does if you've seen Rodney Asher's The Nightmare, uh, which is a very, very weird, interesting film from a couple years ago. Um, if you've never seen it, it's streaming on Netflix. If you've never uh, seen it, don't watch it. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> Too scary. Uh, it is, yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely, I, I'm, I don't. I don't think I share this opinion from when I saw it, but I've definitely heard people refer to it as the scariest movie they've ever seen. And it's like totally, I mean, it's, it's, it's a documentary. I mean, it's not like it is, it is through and through a documentary. There, there are some like recreated scenes, but uh, yeah, the, the concepts and uh, the, the, um, the subject of what it is about is very bizarre and, interesting and troubling and scary and, and all that. So, uh, yeah, I, even if Sarah's warning you, I'm going to be the, uh, the bad person and say, you should see it. If only to, uh, pair that up with all of our content throughout the week. Uh, and then, uh, following that, we are going to be, uh, covering the uh, silent film again on the website for, uh, the phantom carriage, which is a Swedish, silent film uh, from the early 1920s. Uh, a very fun, uh, maybe not as creepy anymore, um, given the, the filmmaking style, but a film about uh, basically uh, the Grim Reaper. Uh, very fun film. And then uh, during Halloween week, we will be talking about uh, one of the classic mid-80s horror franchises, one of my favorite films ever, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. So that will be uh, very fun to revisit as well. Awesome. Uh, uh, and then uh, potentially, if we get our lives together, a mini-sode for me and Aaron Pinkston uh, talking about the 24-hour horror movie marathon that we are both going to starting on Saturday. Uh, yes, you should definitely uh, do that music because box. Yeah. Our, our next episode is episode number 24, so that would be appropriate, and I would appreciate that. Yeah, one episode per hour and then we'll be spending watching horror movies, uh, which actually sort of tangentially leads me to uh, or to to prompt Sarah to ask you a question, John. Yes. Have you seen Beauty and the Beast? I have not. Thank you for another segment of Has John Seen Beauty and the Beast? Uh, it's funny because Sarah and I will, uh, I guess, this, see this show again, again because uh, it is part of this marathon that we'll be attending. So. You guys have to let me know exactly what yeah. day and exactly what time you're going to be watching it because maybe I'll watch it at the same time, but probably not. Oh, okay. That'll be fun. Uh, Saturday at noon. <laughs> Uh, uh, no, I, I think it's at maybe one o'clock on Saturday. So, okay, so we'll see if we can make that happen. Uh, in the meantime, <laughs> thank you for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.